Before I pray, let's just dwell on some of what we just sang. Empty-handed, I rejoice. You deserve the greater glory. Overcome with joy, I sing. I just want us to, just for a second, just, just think about that phrase. Overcome with joy. When is the last time that that idea, that phrase, was true of you? When's the last time that you were just overwhelmed with joy at how good and gracious our God is? Think about that. Just, just, just think about, like, if that was right now, if that was a day ago, if that was a week ago, if you can't, but if you can't remember, if you can't put a, a, a specific place in your mind, if, you can't, if there's nothing coming from your heart where you're like, no, I know when that was. I, just, I want us to think about that idea, that idea of being overcome, overwhelmed with joy at knowing our good and gracious King. Are we a people that can be described by the overwhelming joy that is true in our lives? Are we, are we joyful? Are we overcome with that because of who our good and gracious King is and what He has done? So that no matter what is present in our lives, right? Because we sang, empty-handed, I rejoice needing nothing because this is a king in need of nothing. He doesn't need us to bring anything. When, when is the last time that, that it was true that, that maybe you had nothing to give, nothing present in your life that seemed good or joy-filling, and yet you were still overcome with joy at who your king is? Let's dwell on that idea as I pray for us. God, I pray this morning that that would be true of who we are, that that would be the hallmark of who your people are in this place. Whether we have lots, whether we have little, whether we have lots of good happening in our life, whether there's lots of pain and frustration, whatever it is that may be true of us, God, you don't require any of that for us, for you to do something amazing in our lives, for you to add us to your family. You did not require that we have good things or require that we get rid of all good. You didn't require any of those things. You saved us because you desired to save us. And God, I pray that that would make our joy complete in everything that we, we do and everything that we face. God, that we would be a people so overcome by the joy of knowing you. The joy of having you, that that would be who we are as a people. That people would know 
that we know you because of the joy that we have in you. no matter what it is that we're facing. So God, I pray that you would be at work in our hearts this morning as we continue to explore your word, continue to try to understand what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. And God, I pray that you would be revealing in our hearts where perhaps we have fallen away from joy because of the circumstances of our life or what we have or don't have, not being what's satisfying us. But God, I pray that this morning you would be filling this place and filling our hearts with your Holy Spirit, that we might be overwhelmed, overcome with joy. Because you are our good and gracious King. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. You can be turning back to James chapter 5. We are nearing we are nearing the end of James. And the language that James is going to start taking on over these last couple of weeks really is trying to take take everything that we've been saying. He's going to try to start bringing it back full circle. And hopefully by the time we get to the end today, you're seeing how he's starting to tie everything back together. He's starting to bring everything back together. Everything is starting to make sense. And all of the things that he's been saying all along really start to kind of gel together. And you see the big picture of what it is that James has been trying to teach us. And maybe over the last couple of weeks where we've been talking about the sinful ways to deal with having great wealth, maybe you haven't really been able to connect with that idea. Maybe you've been sitting here thinking, yeah, go get them. Because that's not me. I don't have great wealth. Well, this is your week. This is your week because we're going to change perspectives. And James, James has a word for everyone. Because I, like I said, all of this applies to all of us. Because a lot of this is talking about what is our heart attitude. How is, how is our heart responding to the circumstances that we find ourselves in? Specifically with regard to, in the last couple of weeks, how we deal with having wealth. This week is going to talk about how those who did not have wealth respond when they are treated poorly by those perhaps who did have wealth. And maybe you'll find yourself associating more with these people as we go through this morning. But I, I want us all to, again, remember, this is, this is a heart Thing that James is talking about. James is trying to, to show us this is what the heart, the attitude, the lifestyle of a believer should be known for. This is how we should be living our lives, regardless of whether you have great wealth, regardless of whether you don't have great wealth. All of these things are still describing what the heart attitude of a believer should be. So if you're in James chapter 5 uh, this morning, I'm going to read verses 7 through 11. James says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the earth, the early and the late rains? You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, 
We consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So if you know anything about me, you know that typically when I preach, I love to just pack my sermons filled with metaphors because I just, I love metaphors. Usually they take on movie form. I don't have any of those this week because James gave me like four of them. And we get to just look at these metaphors that James is giving us all morning. And we just get to understand what's the point behind a lot of these metaphors that James is explaining to us. So, So James is really speaking my language this morning and hopefully you'll connect with some of these things that he's saying. But right off the bat, so, so this whole idea is this idea of being patient as we are suffering through some sort of injustice, some sort of, some sort of being outcast, downtrodden, something along those lines. This idea of feeling rejected or hurt um, in context, and, and, and I'll probably mention it again, but, but we, we, we still know that he's talking to, he's still in the same kind of conversation where he's been talking about wealth over the last couple of weeks. Um, But he's kind of shifting the folks away because of the way this is all kind of written together in the whole chapter, in the whole manuscript, when it comes together. He's kind of shifting his focus. So he's not not challenging the wealthy anymore, but he's talking about those in direct contrast. Those, because last week, what was he calling people out about? He was saying, you know, basically, be kind to those that you're lording all of this authority over. And now he's saying to those who are being, who are being downtrodden, who are being outcast, who are being you know, mistreated by some, he's saying, let me talk to you about patience during this time. Let me talk to you about, about being able to suffer for a long period of time and still hold fast and trust in God that he is going to provide for you. And he starts it off with an agricultural metaphor, which most of us, I know I don't usually connect with. If you've ever seen me try to plant and sustain the life of anything, it does not work. You, I, I could kill a succulent. Like, like, that seems impossible. Those things sit on store shelves for, it seems like, decades, and they're fine. I buy one, and it immediately says, I'm out. I'm good, guys. Like, like I do not have a green thumb. I do, like, so, so this whole idea of living in an agri... I would not have done well in an agricultural society like they were living in at this point, where, where so much of their economy is built on their ability to to grow things to then be able to eat and sell so that they can afford to have the things that they need. My family would just starve. We would just starve. That's, that's basically how it will work out for us. But he says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. It's saying, what James is trying to say here is, The farmer has a whole life that is built around the things that he plants growing effectively. And there are really only two times a year when the rains come heavily. There's a time right after they would plant all of their seeds, it would rain heavily. They'd time it right before all the rains would come. And then there'd be a long period where it wouldn't rain again. And then it would rain right again before the time of the harvest. And if either of those did not come, there would not be a harvest. There would not be food for your family. There would not be income for your family to go out and buy more food. These things would not work out. And so there was a whole lot of reliance on these things that were out of the control of the farmers. That they had to just trust that it was coming. They had to be patient as they waited on that rain. Because if your whole life is dependent on a certain time when the rain would come, 
you can't control that. There's nothing that you could do. Sure, now we could go turn on a hose or we could, or we could get, out, get out the, you know, the little, what, the sprinkler that goes back and forth like this that the kids like, used to like to jump through, you know, that sort of, right? Like you, you could break those things out. We have a little bit more say, but, but you got to think about what he's saying in this society where they don't have water hoses, they don't have sprinklers, they don't have control over bringing water out to the fields and, 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 and making sure that they're still able to eat. They are... 100% dependent on a source that they have no control over for everything to work out. And so there's a long period of time every year where they're probably just sitting there saying, that rain's coming at some point. And until it comes, we have nothing. And, and James is calling them to, like they patiently wait for the rain year after year after year. He's saying, when you are, when you are suffering, when you are being mistreated, when you're being outcast, when you are facing trial, when you're facing whatever it is that you're facing, when there's something in your life that, that is bad, bad, it's very, very bad, to patiently be able to wait on the Lord to move because the Lord has a plan. The Lord is moving in a certain way. God has some sort of plan that he's working out through whatever it is that you're facing right now. And you only need to Trust that he is in control and that he is working everything out. Because in the end, like I said, they had no control over the weather. Their patience on the rain signifies a trust in God to provide it. Because, because God is the one who gives and withholds the rain. Amos chapter 4 verse 7 says, I also withheld the rain from you. When there were yet three months to the harvest, I would send rain on one city and then send no rain on another city. One field would have rain and the field on which it did not rain would wither. This, this is God saying, I'm in control even, even on the which fields, which cities get rain and which don't. And I'm the one who's, who's providing the rain, but also if you don't get it, it's because I withheld it. I kept the rain back for a desired purpose. Meaning that sometimes when God gives us those things that we're patiently waiting on, that's, a, that's, a, that's an immediate time for us to rejoice because God has provided and we should see that God has, again, demonstrated himself to provide for our needs. But at the same time in that passage, what's he saying? He's saying that there are, there are times when God withholds the rain. He withholds the thing that we think we need for his own divine purpose, for his own intent. He's, he's the one who who gives the rain, but he also has purpose behind leaving us sometimes in our suffering, in our discomfort, in the state where we don't have everything that we need, even occasionally in positions of oppression or mistreatment, right? I mean, look at his people. Look at his people who, who as, as a punishment for their rejection of him in the Old Testament, he sent them into captivity for large periods of time. Some never came back. Some were gone for 70 years. Like, like God was willing to leave his people in a place where they were probably being oppressed, mistreated, because he had a greater purpose behind what he was doing rather than just providing them a comfortable, safe place at a given moment. And I don't know where on that spectrum you find yourself right now. But, but what James is trying to say is that, that just like the farmer would patiently wait and trust 
and put his hope in God to provide. He's saying God is ready to act when the time is right. You are only being called to patiently wait on him to provide. Because he says in verse 8, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Meaning, he's ready. He's got a plan. He's going to do something. But until he does, it's only meant that we should patiently wait. We shouldn't grumble. We shouldn't complain. We shouldn't shake our fists and say, God, why not now? I don't think it's wrong to say, hey, God, now would be a good time. But God knows what it is that he's doing. And so he's encouraging us to be patient as we wait on him to act. And maybe you can connect with those who are being mistreated or oppressed or are poor and neglected or forgotten. Maybe, maybe you can connect in some way with that idea. But, but even to those, even to you, God is saying, I know that as of right now, I'm holding the rain back from you. But I'm, but I'm working out a greater thing because, you ha- because I have a greater plan that I'm working out amidst all of this. If we truly are going to be a people who believe that God is in control over his creation and that God has a great plan for his creation, even in times where we are suffering, even in times where we are uncomfortable, even in times where where the evil of the world and sin seems to be overwhelming to us, we are called to be a people who are filled with patience as we wait on God to move. Because God is saying, it's saying, he is ready to act. The judge is right here. God is standing by. He's not not detached from his creation. He hasn't left us in it and then gone away to go, you know, on vacation. And when he gets back, he'll get to us. No, he's actively aware of everything that is going on within his creation. He He doesn't disassociate himself with us. He doesn't go far away. He doesn't leave us alone like... We're not, we're not theists who think that God created everything and then just went away to go play golf. That's, that's not who our God is. He is actively involved. So, he is, so, so if you feel forgotten or if you feel like he has not given you something that, that you have wanted or that you thought you needed, it's not that he has forgotten you. And this may sound really, really painful to hear, but he is actively holding that thing back from you like he says he actively holds back the rain. And he's doing that for a greater purpose. We don't necessarily know what it is, but that time will come, the time will come when we are able to see fully what it is that his plan has been, what it is that he has been working out. And we are called to patiently wait for him to reveal that to us. So specifically, God desires that his people remain away from, remain from grumbling. It kind of, it reminded me, when I was, when I was studying this, it reminded me of the story of the prodigal son. Um, we're not going to read the whole thing, but, but short, short and condensed version. There was a guy who had two sons. One of the sons decided, you know what, I wish my dad was dead and I had my inheritance already, so I'm going to ask him for my half of the inheritance. And his dad says, Sure here, have it. And he takes it and he moves away and he wastes all of it real fast. He ends up poor and then humbly broken, comes back to his father and says, let me just work for you as a servant because I don't deserve to be your son anymore. And, 
And the dad says, no, you're my son. I'm going to restore you. You're going to be my son. You're still going to be my son. You're still going to get your inheritance when the time comes that I die. And a lot of times that's the part of the story that we focus on. But it was a story about a guy with two sons and the brother. As soon as, as this prodigal son comes back, as soon as he comes back and he's, and he's restored and redeemed and welcomed back into the family, what is his response? They gave him a feast, but what was the brother's response? He's like, that's not fair. That's not right. This guy, right, this guy ran off. He went off. He did all these things. I've been good. I've been working. And now you're going to throw a party for him? That's not, that's not right. That's, I'm sure that, I think it's in the NIV, stomps his foot like that. Something like that. No. But here's the thing. We can sometimes, when we feel slighted by the decisions that God makes, when we don't like that God is, is redeeming and restoring or blessing a particular person, and we're not being blessed in the same way, our attitude can often become like that of the brother who says, that's not fair, that's not right. Why is God being kind to them, but he's not doing the things for me? Because right, what is it he says? My friends and I have wanted to hang out. You haven't even let us have like a small party. But you know, you just killed the fattened calf for my brother. Right? We can so often begin to feel like, that's unfair. I'm a victim here. You should see how you have, have mistreated me by the way you have unfairly treated other people. We do that within the church. We, we do that everywhere that we go. I mean, okay, think back to elementary school when those kids got together and you weren't invited. That's not fair. Right? It's so tempting to just whine and complain and say, no, this is so bad for me. We do it at church. Oh, they're hanging out. Oh, they must like this person better. Oh, they're, they're doing this thing. Oh, those people get along better, and I just feel excluded. I'm a victim. Everything's bad. <laughs> exactly. Stop stomping. Because sometimes God withholds things from us. Sometimes God leaves us in these places where we may feel downtrodden and forgotten and mistreated. All of these things may be true of how we feel. But James is calling us not to grumble, not to complain, but to, to love and accept that this is what God has for us at the time. And even more so, I think he calls us to be joyful in that, which sounds crazy which sounds so unlike anything that would naturally happen, that doesn't make sense. Because as soon as we say it's not fair that God is acting that way, what does he say about us? You're acting like the judge. You're saying that you should get to decide what's right. You're saying that you should get to decide what's best. And what he says is, as soon as you start getting up on your high horse and judging and saying, this is what really should be happening. God's being unfair in this way. God should give the rain now or he's a big meanie head. Right? If that's our attitude, what he's saying is, the judge, and if you'll notice the difference, this is subtle. This is subtle, but it says so much. In verse... I'm going to start in verse, I think, 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Notice that. Judge starts with a lowercase j. Behold, the judge is standing at the door with a capital J. 
So I think we should read that with a little bit more inflection. That you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Like, I think that's the kind of eminence that he's trying to, he's trying to, he's like, say, as soon as you sit there and start trying to act like you know better than God how things should be, even if you're in a bad place right now, the judge is standing at the door. It's that, it's that whole idea of, I wasn't going to make a movie reference, but now I gotta, because this is a perfect one. So in Monsters, Inc., when Mike Wazowski just starts ranting and raving about how annoying Roz is. You all know Roz, right? Where he's like, she's awful and she does this and she smells funny and all this. She's standing right behind me, isn't she? Right? This is what, this is the exact example of what James is trying to say. You're complaining, you're grumbling about how bad God's decisions are and look, he's right over your shoulder. He's right behind me, isn't he? That's what James is saying. So we have to check ourselves because, because God is actively aware of what is happening within his creation. And if we are going to live like his people, we must live patiently trusting the decisions that he's making every single moment of our lives. There's no room for us to complain that he has mistreated us. There's no room for us to think that, that God is being a big meanie head. By the way, don't call God a big meanie head. He might get punished. That's not a good idea. This is the most like responsiveness I've ever gotten out of a crowd. I love it. I feel good. We'll turn these into amens one day, but it's okay. We haven't gotten there. Moreover, moreover, God is the one who promised that he will avenge those who are oppressed. He will judge He gives us all these different examples of those who have suffered. But in the end, it talks about how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. That was verse 11. God is the one who will, who will right the wrongs. We do not feel that we should make everything right on our own behalf. We don't need to take control of every situation. We are called to sit back and let him work. Romans 12 verse 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. There goes a whole slew of movies that we shouldn't take as examples. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. He's saying, God is going to take care of this. You don't need to take control. If everything seems to not be going the way that God promised, don't try to make it right... Abraham and Sarah, right? God says, you're going to have a son. I'm going to make you a great nation. Sarah says, there's no way it's going to work out the way God says. I have a better idea. Let's do it this way. Because, because if not, it's not fair that I'm being, we're being treated this way. It's not fair that God would say he's going to make a nation when I can't have a kid. That's not fair. Here, have my servant have a kid. God's saying, you don't fix it. I will fix it. If you're being mistreated, you don't avenge yourself. I will take care of it. I've got it. That is a hard calling for us to be able to step back, to step away, and just trust that God is going to take care of us. God will take care of the rejected and the oppressed. And so James gives us, again, more examples 
of when this is happening, of how God has worked in these situations. And he gives us, I think, two perfect examples. So he says, look at the prophets. All of these guys who were called by God to go proclaim God's message, and for the most part, their whole lives, they walked out, they said, this is the message of God. And they said, we don't like that message, we don't like you, we're going to kill you now. And what did they do? They continued to proclaim the message of God, confidently, even unto the point of death. They didn't say, God, this is unfair that they're not listening to the things you're telling us to say. God's saying, I know they're not listening to the things you're going to say. Sometimes he would even tell the prophets specifically, I'm going to give you this message. They're not going to listen. That's how God works. That's how God sends people out. That's how God says, look, so this, I have this plan. I want you to do this thing. You're going to be obedient, but I'm not even going to give you fruit from that plan. Sometimes that may be what your life feels like when you're facing various things. It's like, I am doing exactly what God said. God said, live your life this way. Or God said, you know, preach the gospel this way. God said, share your faith this way. And I'm not seeing anything happen, but that's okay. It's not on you to make these results happen. It's on you to be obedient to the call of God and be patient on him to move. Even when you're feeling like everything you do is right and yet you're still being rejected. Look at Job, who continued to be faithful even though it got worse and worse and worse and worse. And God allowed Job to be made an example in the worst way. Job lost everything, his wife, his kids, his health. Everything was falling apart to the point that his friends were coming around him and giving him this great advice of, you should just curse God and die. That would probably be better than what it is. And no, Job continued to be patient and wait on God to move. And James is reminding us, if you're facing anything, and you may feel like I know exactly how Job felt. And maybe you do. You may be saying, I know exactly how the prophets felt. And maybe you do. And yet you're still being mistreated or forgotten or, or pushed to the side or ignored. And James is just saying, you've seen the purpose of the Lord. Like, think back to these people's situations. Think back to Job. He was mistreated. He, was, he lost everything. Everything was bad, bad, very, very bad. And yet, in the end, God was merciful and compassionate. God was faithful to Job. He had a long-term plan. Oh, that we would be a people who could face any sort of painful circumstance, any sort of mistreatment, any sort of being outcast or forgotten, any sort of rejection in the face of doing something righteous, any sort of pushback for being a people of faith, anyone, a people who would face great trials and still be able to see that God is compassionate and merciful even in that. And this is where I think James really begins to pull everything full circle. This is where he really starts to tie all of these thoughts that he's been saying over the last five chapters, and we've been in for the last several months together. 
This is where he really starts to pull it together. And, and, and you may be like, how is this connected to everything else he's been saying? Well, I mean, if you've been here on Sunday nights, this will be familiar. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. From the very beginning, James is going to say, you should be overwhelmed with joy when you face trials because God's doing something with you. Just like we started with today. When is the last time that you were overcome overcome with joy. Even more so. When is the last time that you were facing something just awful? Something terrible, painful, hurtful, and yet you were overcome with joy. Are we that people Is this you? Because that's what James is calling us to. That's what God calls us to. He calls us to be a people who not not just see him as God and Savior, but they see him as God and Savior even when everything around them is terrible. Even when it's bad. That you, would, that you would be so focused on who God is and what he has done in your life. That your joy cannot be contained. Let's pray. God, this is a big calling. This is a hard ask. This is a, this is a confusing place to find ourselves, in a place where we look at everything around us, look at the pain that we may be feeling or the frustration or the temptation to become impatient and say, God, you need to do something now. This isn't fair. Look at how I've been treated. But God, I just pray that you would open our eyes, reveal to us what it is that you have been doing in our lives all along. What it is that you've already done for us by adding us to your family, by adopting us as your sons and daughters. That we would just be so overwhelmed by your compassion and mercy for us. That anything else that we may be facing would just pale in comparison to the goodness of who you are. God, we are all facing different trials, but I pray that we would see how those trials are building steadfastness within us, that we may be perfect, that's a big word, and complete, lacking in nothing, that we would not feel like we're lacking, that we not feel like we're missing out on anything, but rather that we would just feel 100% complete in you. God, I pray that we would see that that the more we go through bad times or rejection or painful things, that more more than anything else, 
we would just see how those things that we don't have in that time aren't what completes us. That we would gain that perspective that we really have not needed those all along because we have you. And God, I just pray that you would fill us with an overwhelming sense of joy. The kind of joy that doesn't make sense. The kind of joy that's, that's a little bit scary to those who don't know you, that don't know that joy. The kind of joy that just seems unnatural because our, because our joy is complete in you. We are everything that we need because we have you and that, that would just be everything that comes out of us. That everything that we do would be done for your glory because you deserve the greater glory. We're overcome with joy to the king who needs nothing, who saved us because he wanted to. That you, our good and gracious king, would receive everything that we can give you because you alone deserve it. God, I pray that you would reveal in our hearts the areas of our lives where perhaps we are, we are feeling rejected or despised or forgotten or that everything is bad and it's easy to, to fall into the temptation of not trusting that you have our best interest in mind. Or perhaps we've guarded ourselves against having these kind of big responses to you because, because we're afraid of, of perception or we're afraid of what the, res, what the, respo, the response may be or we're afraid of how that might affect those around us or, or perhaps because we just don't feel that joy. And God, when we're in our times where we're not feeling joy, I pray that that would be the time when when you would reveal yourself to us the most clearly. That we could see what it is that you've done. You'd remind us of your faithfulness and your goodness. And that, that our response wouldn't just be words that we know to be true in our heads, but God, that we would feel it in our souls and it would come out of us in such an overwhelming way. God, make us the people who who live that, that word, consider it pure joy when you face trials. So that we can be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God, I pray that you would complete the work that you have begun in us and overwhelm us with the joy of knowing you. Knowing what it is that your son has done for us so that we could be saved. And it's in his name we pray.